My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, um, have you ever wondered how and why Jesus rescued you? If you're a follower of Jesus, and maybe you've been for a long time, maybe it's been a shorter time, but have you ever thought about, why? Why did he rescue me? How did he do that? Maybe he should have left me behind. I, I, I know that I kept rejecting him and rejecting him, and God kept pursuing me, pursuing me. He shows his kindness to us over and over again. And there are people in Dallas and in Oregon and in the United States and in Uganda who are living apart from God's loving kindness. And I want, I want us to be part of how God's love gets to them. So grab your Bible and uh, open. Uh, I, I am changing my mind. So the screen says chapter 11, verse 27. I'm going to have you go ahead and open to chapter 12. We're going to start Mark chapter 12, verse 1. So open your Bibles. Turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 1. You're certainly welcome to use a real Bible with paper pages. You're certainly welcome to get a Bible on your digital device. But if your digital device tends to display your favorite game instead of your Bible app, then put it away and get out the Bible. Studied, we're serious about studying God's word around here. We are journeying together through the gospel of Mark, the story of Jesus' life and ministry. We've come to chapter 12, and I want our fingers in the text, your, your finger following along from God's word this morning as we ask him to teach us. So whether it's on paper or on your device, Mark chapter 12, verse 1. And uh, in the recent the last couple of Sundays, we've heard that Jesus is entering Jerusalem for what will be the last week of his life on earth as in the flesh. We have heard that uh, he enters Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, being declared the Messiah, being recognized by at least some as the promised rescuer. Last week, we, we uh, talked about him cursing the fig tree and cleansing the temple because he was, he was proclaiming judgment against fruitlessness, following God, but not having a life that looked like what God would want. And so as, as we pick up now in chapter 12, Jesus is facing increased hostility, conflict with the religious leaders of that time. Chapter 12, verse 1. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. So here we go. Jesus is facing all this hostility and this conflict with the religious leaders, and he's going to now teach a lesson. He's going to tell a story called a parable, and he's going to use this occasion to tell a parable called the parable of the tenants, or perhaps called the parable of the wicked vineyard keepers. And a parable is a, is a type of teaching, a way of storytelling that, that actually makes its meaning hard to understand for those who are indifferent and don't care or are not, not looking to learn from God. And a parable tends to make it easy to understand, make, it tends to enlighten those who are seeking, those who want to know the truth of God. And so this parable that Jesus is about to teach, it could be received pretty tough. It, it, it would be pretty tough to hear for these religious leaders but this parable shows God's grace. 
because Jesus wants this parable to break through to their hearts. He wants them to know the meaning. He wants them to know of God's kindness. Um, as I studied this week, um, one, one book in particular I found really helpful was by an author and a pastor named Kent Hughes. And so I just want to give credit where credit is due right up front, that this outline, some of these points that you're going to see on the screen are adapted right out of, of uh, Kent Hughes' excellent work. So I um, want to start with that. Jesus uses this parable to describe these things. Here's what we're going to see in this passage this morning. The hope of God for his people, the kindness of God for his own, the severity of God, and the ultimate triumph of God in history. That's what we are going to see this parable teach us. Heavenly Father, we come to you with your word open in our laps, in our hands. And God, we need you to teach us this morning. We thank you for the Bible, for this word that you've given us to teach us. God, we thank you that as followers of Jesus, we have your spirit, the Holy Spirit living within us. Would the spirit uh, illuminate the scriptures, help us to understand, help us to hear from you this morning. God, would you open our hearts and minds so that we can hear the good news, so that we can see with fresh eyes the goodness of the good news. And God, I pray that, that for, for me and my friends in this room, that we would truly know how good the good news is. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're back to verse 1. Jesus now speaking to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and then the owner went into another country. Jesus' listeners here would know that this parable, in speaking of a vineyard, is describing Israel, God's people. There was a, it was a frequently used metaphor, the vineyard, for God's people. So the listeners would know that the vineyard represents God's people. Now let me ask you, here in verse 1, we have an owner who plants a vineyard. When you plant a vineyard, what are you hoping for? Fruit, grapes. You're planning for a harvest, right? So that's why the owner planted a vineyard in the first place. And what about those other steps we saw in verse 1? What about those other steps he took? He put a fence around it. He dug a pit. He built a tower. What do you think those steps are taken for? Protect the vineyard. Be able to watch over it. Be able to make it useful, right? To make the vineyard productive and effective. He planted it to produce fruit, and he took steps to make it effective and fruitful in producing fruit, wanting good results, wanting a harvest in the future. So in this parable then, if the vineyard is God's people, the vineyard owner is God. In this parable, the vineyard owner represents God, the planter of his people, the one who put his people in place for a purpose, the one who put them in a time and place for a reason and according to his good purposes. Psalm 44.2 on the screen is, is God's people speaking to God about their forefathers, 
saying, you, God, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them, our fathers, our ancestors, you planted them. God had planted the nation of Israel, and God had high hopes for them to produce fruit and to be a blessing to the world. So this is where we see the hope of God for his people. He planted his people with hopes for the future, with hopes for them to be fruitful and productive and and live for his name and his glory and for their lives to display his goodness and for their lives to help other people come to know and follow him. These are the purposes of God in planting his people. He had hope for his people. God expected great things to come spiritually from his vineyard. You with me? He expected spiritual growth in his people, and he expected the spiritual growth of his people to be translated to them loving the world with his love so that they might know him too. And so then if God is the vineyard owner, and he leaves the country and he entrusts the vineyard to others, here we have the religious leaders of the time. God expects the vineyard to be fruitful, and so he puts the religious leaders over God's people. And and he says, I'm entrusting my vineyard to you, religious leaders of the time. Take care of my people and help them be fruitful and lead them. So God had those high hopes for his people, and those expectations, at least partially, rested on the religious leaders. And if you look down at verse 12, you'll see the religious leaders knew that Jesus was teaching the parable against them. They could tell that the parable was told against these wicked vineyard keepers, these tenants. So in the parable where the owner rents the vineyard to the tenants, God has handed off this responsibility to to train and to love and to teach his people to be fruitful to the religious leaders. And so if we pause for a moment and think, what does this have to do with us? I think that we too must sit up and take notice here. God entrusted this responsibility to his leaders in this parable. But I think we all need to sit up and take notice as well. Each of you, as you've heard me say many times, if you're a follower of Jesus, each of you is a Holy Spirit-empowered minister of the gospel of Jesus, a bearer of his good news. And we have been given much. In fact, I think we've been given more than the religious leaders at the time, in Jesus' time. I mean, you think of, of the benefits that we have. These religious leaders haven't yet seen Jesus' death and victorious resurrection from the dead. We have. Are you with me that we've been given much? We've been entrusted with this good news? We have the Holy Spirit of God. As followers of Jesus, God himself dwells within us. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the the book that sits in your lap, God's very word given to us that we might know him, that we might obey him, and that we might live for him. We've been given much. We have all of this and many more resources. So we too need to understand that God has entrusted us to tend the vineyard, to be caretakers of his people and to proclaim his good news, to bear fruit for his glory. God has hope for his people, and that includes you and I. He has hopes for us beyond just what we've learned so far as a Christian. 
He has hopes that go beyond where you are today as a Christian, where I am today as a Christian. He has hopes for me to continue to be transformed into his likeness and to proclaim the good news. You guys with me so far? Did the moving you around help at all? Your stomachs are telling you it's afternoon. It's only 11 a.m. Stay focused. Stay focused. Verse 2. Oh, boy, Derek's only got through one verse so far. We're in trouble. Okay, verse 2. When the season came, the owner of the vineyard sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. And the tenants took him, the servant, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the owner sent to them another servant. And the tenants struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And the owner sent another. And him they killed. And so with many others, some of them they beat and some they killed. This treatment of the owner by the way his servants are being treated is outrageous, isn't it? The tenants, the vineyard keeper's treatment of the owner by the way they treat those he sends, this is, this is incredibly terrible, outrageous behavior. And yet, and yet, you know what this parable tells us about? This parable tells us of God's incredible, loving kindness. Why? Why do I say that? Because it shows how patient God is in the face of our outrageous, hostile rejection of him over and over. He sends someone else. He gives another chance. He says, I'm, com I'm, I'm coming to you. Israel's leaders, the tenants, the vineyard keepers, were trying to take credit for the vineyard's fruitfulness themselves, that they wanted to keep the fruitfulness of the vineyard. They wanted to take credit for it. They wanted to be seen as high and mighty. They wanted it to be all about them. And so they reject the owner's involvement and don't give credit where credit is due. And their persistent rejection, look what we just read in those few verses, their persistent rejection goes from beating to wounding to murder. And God keeps coming. The vineyard owner keeps coming, keeps sending, keeps caring. This is symbolic of God's patient, pursuing efforts to get through to his people. Don't, and those of us that have been around the church for a while or, or have read some of the Old Testament, have we seen God send to his people ministers of the good news, those proclaiming life, and they were rejected, and God sends another prophet, and they're rejected? This is this is symbolic, this parable is symbolic of all God's patient pursuing efforts to get through to us. He sends prophets and teachers only to have them ignored and rejected. So God takes another step. 
So God takes a major step now. God takes the ultimate step. He sends his son. Verse 6. He had still one other. The vineyard owner had still one other he could send. A beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they'll respect my son. But those tenants, those vineyard keepers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out in the vineyard, out of the vineyard. See, the vineyard keepers maybe saw the heir coming and they assumed the owner was dead. And so if they kill the son, it will give them control of the vineyard. It'll let them hog it all to themselves. It'll let them take all the credit for it. They, they want to take the place of God. They reject God over and over. His servants come to them and reject and reject and reject. And then his, his very son comes to them and they kill him. And, and as Jesus tells this parable, at, in the last week of his earthly life, what's about to happen in just a few days? As Jesus tells this parable 2,000 whatever years ago, these religious leaders who he is speaking the parable to will accuse him and call for his execution. And so what do we learn from the parable? We see that the life and death of Jesus are a display of God's incredible Pursuing love, his incredible kindness to us because God keeps coming. I mean, is this amazing? God on high, almighty creator of the heavens and the earth came near. He sent a, a representative, rejected. Sent a representative, rejected. Sent a representative, rejected. His people still turned against him and weren't living fruitful lives. And so God said, I'm going to take the next step, a major step, the ultimate step. I'm going to send my very son because I want to get through to them. How much I love them and how much I want them to be living for me and how much I can help them and change them. And so God sends his son. He comes near to us in Jesus. There was nothing bigger or better that God could do. Did you hear that? There was, there was nothing bigger or better or more amazing that God could do to show you, to get through to you, to rescue you, than send his son. And the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus then show us how much God loves us. God was all in on his rescue plan. The vineyard owner was all in on getting through to those guys, and God is all in on coming to the rescue of you and people that are, heart, that are broken and apart from Jesus. So, if that's true about Jesus, then trusting him or rejecting him has eternal consequences, has eternal significance. Do you know this? We all know, um, we all are aware of people in our lives that are living apart from God that 
have rejected Jesus. And, and yet, this parable should give us encouragement because I believe that God's kindness persists to the end, pursues them and persists and, and, and wants them to know him until the end of their earthly journey. God patiently pursues and offers the free gift of salvation through Jesus. Have you seen, um, have you seen God's kindness pursue you like that? I think one of the easiest ways I've seen God's kindness pursue me is the people that he put in my life. The people in my family and at my church that pointed me to Jesus. Those are conduits of God's kindness to me. And um, quick commercial here. Um, Many of you are connected within our church family. This is a large gathering. When you come on Sunday mornings, this is important to gather together as God's people and to worship him together and to study God's word. But within a church family, I can't urge you enough to be connected in a smaller way, to make this large church family be a bit smaller. Find a place where you can connect with others, where you can know others and be known by others and where we can really pursue life with Jesus together. And so, so many of you are are doing that. I love it. Great. If you're already connected to a 9 a.m. adult Bible fellowship or you're already connected to a community life group during the week, I love it. It's so important to, to what God wants to do in your life. If you're not, I can't urge you enough to be looking for opportunities to make this church family smaller, where you can be part of a group where you can know and be known. Are you with me? There was a great group of you that joined me at 9 a.m. this morning. I, I, I invited this morning and the next two Sundays, I've invited those of you, especially those of you that are not already connected to a small group in our church family, and I know there's more of you, that God wants to reach, that God wants to pursue. And part of how he is pursuing you is he is drawing you into our church family. And I'm going to urge you to take what's big and make it smaller and and find a way to get connected with a smaller group. So if that's you, the next two Sundays at 9 a.m. over in the community center, it's just a sneak preview with me of some things I'm passionate about and some things I think are important about journeying in our lives with a small group of people. And then we're going to look to early next year launching some new groups that you can be a part of. Sound good? All right, commercial over. There's information in your bulletin. God's kindness. You've experienced God's kindness. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have experienced his pursuing kindness. Yes? Okay. So we see in Romans the verse that says, his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness is meant for us to to fall in front of him and and, and give our lives to him, to repent of our sin, to turn from our old way of living and go, God, I need you. And so we, in our own lives, I pray that God's kindness will have led you and me to repentance, to turning to Jesus for life, for new life in him. And we also need to pray that God's kindness will lead those we know to Jesus. We need to pray that God's kindness to those that we know in our lives that are lost and living apart from Jesus, that, 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 that God's kindness will lead them to repentance. Because while God's kindness pursues to the very end, there will come a time when it's too late. There will come a time when it's too late and all that will be left is the severity of God. Verse 9. 
Remember, they've just killed all of his representatives, then they've killed his son. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. The, the coming wrath of God, coming judgment was a reality at this time when Jesus told this parable. It was a reality for God's people and for Jerusalem because it wouldn't be just a few years later that the temple would be destroyed and Jerusalem would fall. And coming judgment is a reality today as well. Coming judgment is a reality for all of us too, and and especially those that are living far from God. Remaining opposed to God, continually rejecting, leads to hopeless danger. The penalty of our sin and our rebellion against God and our rejection of him over and over, or I should say the the repeated rejection of those apart from Christ, leads to an eternity apart from God's loving and gracious presence, an eternity in torment, in anguish, instead of experiencing God's loving presence. God pursues and pursues and pursues, and he demonstrates his loving kindness. Sorry, splash zone. If you're in the front row, it's a little bit dangerous. I'm getting excited, apparently. That's good. You guys actually under, did you guys understand the idea of a splash zone? See, I thought that was shit, that's a San Diego joke. I'm from San Diego. We were 20 minutes away from SeaWorld. If you sit in the front row, you get splashed by the animals. Okay. Yeah, well, I just spit, so yeah. Okay. I know there are people in the back row going, what is he talking about? What is he apologizing for? You're not in the splash zone. Good job. Oh, boy, where was I? <laughs> So understanding the severity of God leads us to help others. Um, this, this parable is pretty intense, yes? But here comes the good news. In this parable, we, we have found, we've seen his loving kindness, but we also see the coming triumph of God. At this point in the parable, Jesus quotes Psalm 118. We get come to verse 10 and 11, and he quotes Psalm 118. In fact, this is interesting about this psalm that he quotes. This psalm was already understood at that time to be a messianic psalm, meaning, meaning a psalm, a song about the promised rescuer, the rescuer to come, Jesus. So this psalm, 118, would have even been being sung that very week as Jerusalem gathered to celebrate during Passover week. This, this song, this psalm of the promised rescuer, verse 10. So Jesus quotes here, in our verse 10 in Mark, Jesus is quoting Psalm 118. Verse 10, have you not read this scripture, Jesus says? The stone that has, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is incredible because Jesus, at the time of telling this parable, would be standing not far from the remains, the rubble of Solomon's temple, the temple prior to the one that is built where he's standing now. Jesus is standing near the rubble of Solomon's temple, and he uses this psalm, this quote in verse 10, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He uses that that piece of a song 
to paint a picture for them right there and then that there had been this stone that as they constructed the temple, this particular stone had been rejected. It was, it, it, maybe at first it did not look useful or appropriate for the construction of the temple, but eventually it had become the cornerstone or, or some say the keystone, this, this significant architectural piece of the building. It had become the cornerstone or the keystone of the entrance to the temple. It had gone from being rejected. You're with me? Are you hearing this? Are you seeing the tide of the parable here? It had been, the stone had been rejected and then in the end, it became the key piece to a new kingdom, to God's presence with us, to our entrance into life with God. In just a few days from this parable being told, the rejection and execution of Jesus would, imagine you were there. Imagine we were there that week. This persistent rejection of Jesus and his eventual execution, from our human perspective, would it not have looked like his purposes were doomed? Didn't look like much of a rescuer. It was looking pretty scary. But that very person, the God-man Jesus, the rejected one, killed on the cross, becomes the cornerstone, the keystone, the entrance to life with God. His, his rejection, the rejection of Jesus opened the way for God to exalt Jesus to being the way, the truth, and the life. That's good news. <laughs> the one rejected became the Savior. Because God kept coming. Faith Evangelical Free Church, that's good news. The gospel, we use this word around here sometimes, the gospel. The gospel literally means good news. Well, what's the good news? The good news is that you and I don't get what we deserve, and we do get what we don't deserve. The gospel is that we are far from God and stuck in our sin and doomed and headed for death, but because of Christ, we have life. That's the gospel. That God through Jesus, made it possible for this mess to be friends with God. But do we know it to be, do we know that news to be good? I, I don't think I do sometimes. I know I've said this before to you guys. We, we talked one time a few months ago about uh, what are you, what were, you know, growing up, what were your favorite words for cool or whatever? And I told you how I, in my lifetime, am from the generation that overuses the word awesome. Awesome is a cool word. I like using it. It totally does not mean what it's supposed to mean anymore. Because awesome is awesome. It's not like cool. So, 
So is it possible that our, my overuse of awesome has taken away the luster? Is it possible that as a long-term Christian, my awareness of the good and good news has kind of shrunk a little bit? Is it possible that the overuse of, of awesome has, has, has brought it down? Is it, is it possible that we're so familiar, we think with the idea of the gospel and what we, what we think is the good news, that maybe it doesn't really, doesn't really capture our hearts as good anymore? I worry that we've become so familiar with the term good and, and, and even the news of the gospel that it's lost a little bit of its power. But Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. You guys still got your finger in Mark? Look with me at verse 11. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We just read on the screen. And now look at verse 11. Look at verse 10 again. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 11. This was whose doing? The Lord's doing, not our doing, not our effort, not our work. This, this becoming the cornerstone, this becoming the key to entrance to the kingdom of God, this salvation is the Lord's doing. And verse 11 says, and it is what? Marvelous! In our eyes. Now there's a word I don't overuse. And so there's a word I think I want to jump on this morning. It is good news. It is marvelous news. It is. It's unbelievable. And some of your translations say wonderful. That's one I don't overuse either. It is wonderful news. This is God's marvelous doing. Making a way for sinful me and you to be in relationship with a great, great God. So if, if awesome and even good are sometimes overused and have lost their brilliance, then maybe wonderful and marvelous will remind us this morning of God's amazing grace to us through Christ at the cross. Let me invite you to stand as we pray. And as you stand, the ushers can come forward to receive our morning offering, and I'd like to pray for us. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, Lord on high, great creator God, you have hope for us to glorify you in all we do. You have, we've read this morning that you have hope for your people to be fruitful and to be glorifying you in all that we do. And God, we want to do that. We, we want to be fruitful and we want to grow spiritually. We want to live our lives for you. But I thank you, God, that it is not up to just me, that it's not up to us alone. God, we thank you that your kindness leads us to repent, to draw near to you, to rely on you. God, I am so thankful that your love fills us and compels us to love others. God, that we're not on our own to be fruitful, that we're not trying to be fruitful or grow spiritually or share the gospel just on our own efforts, but that, God, you are with us. 
We are thankful that you love us so we can love others, that you fill us with your spirit so that we can live for you. God, we pray this morning for those in our lives that are living far from you, that have persistently rejected the good news of Jesus. Father, we pray that you would use us in their lives so that they don't experience the severity of God, that they don't experience eternal consequences. But God, we we pray that, that those we love, those around us, our coworkers, our fellow students, our neighbors, we pray that they would recognize that your perfect life and substitutionary death and triumphant resurrection invite them to life with you. And this is marvelous news. God, we thank you for this wonderful news. So as we continue to worship you, as we continue to lift our voice in song, as we give of our gifts, God, would you help us to reflect on the cross? What people meant to harm Jesus, you used to exalt him to the name that is above every name. We thank you that our hope is built on Jesus, the cornerstone of our faith. We thank you that Jesus rejected, became the keystone, the entrance to life with you. This is marvelous news. This is wonderful news. And so we thank you. And so we worship you now. Well, for our team that points us, that helps us to celebrate the marvelous news together. Amen. It is marvelous news. And, and I am just, I am convinced that as, if we allow God to grab a hold of our hearts, if we, if we come to the gospel with fresh eyes, if we focus our eyes on the gospel, whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or five minutes, let's come to the gospel and let's recognize the marvelous, wonderful news that it is. And I think that as that captures our heart, we won't be able to help but live it out. There will be fruit in our lives. We will grow closer to him. And God will use us for his purposes and his glory in Dallas and to the ends of the earth. Amen.